You are listening to UnChristian, a three-week teaching series from Jubilee Church. This series looks at some of what non-Christians think of Christians and the intensity with which they hold these views in the hopes of better equipping Christians to be able to express the love of Christ to our generation. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. The last two weeks and this week, we've, we've done a series called UnChristian. And the series is based on this book by this, this guy, David Kinnaman. And, and what he did, he's a part of a, a, a research group called the Barna Group. And he spent a few years essentially surveying people that he would describe as outsiders, those who are not a part of the Christian community or a part of a Christian church. They wouldn't, they wouldn't describe themselves to be Christian. They, they would be, you know, anything that isn't Christian, he would describe as... Uh, he, he had a hard time de- de- defining it because he didn't want to say... He didn't want to define people who weren't Christians by what they weren't, right? Because that can be pretty offensive. Like if someone says... You're anti-Muslim. It's like, I'm not anti-Muslim. I just don't, I don't, you know, I don't believe in that. So, so he came up with the term outsider, which is a term I'll use a lot today. That doesn't mean we're in here, they're out there, you know, don't talk to them. But what it means is just simply that they, they don't ascribe to be Christians. And so he spent a few years surveying outsiders, those who don't ascribe to be Christians, asking them how they felt about the Christian faith. About, and ask them how they felt specifically about Christians that they knew. And three of the big things outsiders said about Christians that they knew is that they're hypocrites, that they're anti-homosexual, and that they are judgmental. So guys, we're doing great. We really want a name for ourselves. And the last two weeks we've talked about why would they call us hypocrites and is that true of us? Why would they call us anti-homosexual, and is that true of us? And today we're going to look at why do they call us judgmental, and is that true of us? And there's, there's, there's a few different things we could do with this. We could ignore it, which is personally what I would like to do, because I don't want to confront those things in my life or in our church as a whole. We could look at it and respond to it simply in defense of ourselves, which that's never good, right? Never good just to defend yourself without actually looking at yourself and asking the question, is it true of me? We could kind of cater to it. So instead of saying, no, we want to honor Jesus, we want to honor his word, we want to follow him, we could just say, okay, we're going to shape our lives around whatever makes everyone else happy, which that's not what we want to do either because we're not following pleasing people, we're following Jesus who's alive and we want to honor him with the way we do church, with the way we respond as believers in him. So, so what I would suggest is what we do is we don't cater to this, we don't ignore it, but we humbly listen to it. We humbly say, okay, I'm going to ask God, God, is this true of us? God, if I, I'm going to listen to what this criticism is and say, and say, if I follow Jesus, would this still be true of me? And if we followed Jesus as a church, would people still say this about us? Okay? All right, let's jump in. This is the complaint outsiders have and how they would define being judgmental. Christians are arrogant fault finders who don't understand me and yet have the audacity to judge me in my life. Christians are arrogant fault finders who don't understand me and yet have the audacity to judge me and my life. So I went ahead and broke it down just a little bit more for us. 
So the first big thing is Christians are arrogant and they think they're better than me. The second big thing is Christians are always trying to fix me instead of just being my friend. The third thing is Christians don't understand me and therefore their judgments of me are unmerited and unwelcome. This is what Jeff, who was interviewed by the author of this book, says about Christians. He says, Christians talk about hating sin and loving the sinner, but they wait, the way they go about things, they might as well call it what it is. They hate the sin and the sinner. They hate the sin and the sinner. Now that's been Jeff's experience of church. His experience of church is not just that Christians have a different standard of life, not just that Christians choose to live differently from the world, but actually that because Jeff doesn't anchor his life around the person and work of Jesus, that we hate him. That's been his experience of Christianity. So what we want to look at today is, God, is that really true of us? And if it is, change us. I know for me, this whole judgmental sermon, when Brian asked me to preach on it, I thought to myself, you know, I don't even know that I would want to hear a sermon on being judgmental, let alone preach a sermon on being judgmental. I wouldn't consider myself a judgmental person. I don't um, I don't go to abortion clinics and, you know, pick at them. I don't look at, I don't talk to my neighbor who's, you know, sleeping with his girlfriend and say, man, you're in sin. You need to repent or burn. I don't, you know, I wouldn't consider myself as someone who's judgmental yet in preparing this sermon. I've, I, I, God's really convicted my heart that in, in ways that I wouldn't have expected and in, and in areas that I, that I wasn't seeing, I actually have been judgmental. So I would encourage you, if you're in the same boat today, thinking, I'm not a judgmental person. I can kind of take a nap and go to sleep. Maybe actually you do need to pay attention. Um, if you're an outsider with us today, feel free to take a nap and go to sleep. <laughs> or listen up and hope that we're different from maybe your experience of church in the past 87%, nearly 9 out of 10 outsiders would say that judgmental is a good word to describe Christians. 9 out of 10 outsiders. You know what that means? What that means is that when you introduce yourself to your neighbor and you say Christian, what they're thinking is, oh God, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes being judged. Here it comes them telling me what I'm doing is wrong. Here it comes them just wanting to convert me to their way of life and not actually be my friend. Recently, I met one of my neighbors and I told him, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor of this church down here, and instantly I could see it well up, and I'm like, oh man, how do I get out of this conversation as fast as possible? So the big question comes, how do we respond? Is it true of us? Of this first criticism, this is how I would suggest that we respond. Christians are arrogant and think they're better than me. I would suggest that we become humble and that we treat outsiders with respect as human beings. How did I get there? How did I get to, we become humble and we treat outsiders with respect as human beings. Well, I got it from the Bible. I got it from how God's treated us. And more specifically, I got it from a story in the Bible. In the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus is, kind of to set up this story for you, Jesus is sitting down with a group of people and he's talking to them about the kingdom. He's talking to them about his kingdom, which is coming, and a group of religious leaders catch a woman in the act of adultery. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of the act of adultery happening with just one person, right? I mean, there's always two people involved. So they catch this woman. I don't know what happened to the guy. I guess he was too fast and ran away or was too strong, and they were intimidated. But they catch this woman in the act of adultery, and they drag her before Jesus with this group of other people, 
probably naked. And they say, Jesus, the law of Moses commands us that we stone such women. Stone her to death. What do you say? See, these Pharisees, they didn't care at all about the woman. What they cared about was being proven that they were righteous, that they were good, that they had it figured out. And what they were trying to do was trap Jesus. Because either Jesus was going to side with them and he would be good, and he would have his act together, and he would command that this woman be stoned, or Jesus was going to, he was going to side with this woman and, and he would prove himself to not be good. And he would prove himself to not be, you know, in with the religious crowd. It's a sticky situation for Jesus. It's a really hard situation for this woman. And I want to look at how Jesus responded to her. This is what he said. This is what he said to the Pharisees. He said, okay, guys, you want to throw stones at her. I want you, who's without sin among your group here, to be the first to throw a stone at her. So all you guys, you're here. You're ready to throw stones at her. That's fine. That's fine. I understand. That's what the law of Moses said. That's good. That's right. That's the thing to do. Okay, the first one of you that doesn't need to get thrown stone at you too, you you pick yours up and start chucking it. And it says that one by one, one by one, these Pharisees went away. One by one, they walked away from this scene so that eventually it's just Jesus standing with this woman. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that these Pharisees had all sinned in their life. At some point in their life, each and every one of them had committed a sin, which we know from Romans 3.23, all men have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So not just the Pharisees, you and me. You and me. I mean, I know that's offensive a bit to say that you have sinned in your life, that I've sinned in my life, that each one of us has committed sin against the holy God. What it actually means is that you and I, in our sin, deserve to be stoned as well. That's what that means. What What that means is that you and I, just like this woman, deserve to have stones thrown at us. We deserve to be punished to death for our sin. It also means, seeing that Jesus was still standing, looking at this woman, it means that he was without sin means that he was perfect. means that he had never, there's this kind of theory going around out there that, you know, Jesus sinned because he was a man. Jesus didn't sin. The reason he could die on that cross in our place is because he didn't sin. He was completely perfect without sin. And yet this is what he does for this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, Sin no more. Can you imagine how she felt when he said that? Can you imagine how she felt when he said that? Neither do I condemn you. So she's standing before God, who has every right to judge her after she just committed adultery. And God says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. More. What does this mean for us? I think what this means for us is that we, like these Pharisees, had to put down our stones. We put down our judgments of people. We put down our, why are they like that? Why do they respond like that? Why do they speak like that? Why do they live like that? We put our stones down. 
Why'd they choose that political party over this political party? Why did they, why did she do that? Why, why is she a single mom? Does that mean she's in, why, did, why is, why, why all these things? Means, I think it means we put our stones down just like these Pharisees had to put their stones down. We humble ourselves and realize that just like this woman and just like the people in our lives, our neighbors, our co-workers, we too have sin and we were in need of a Savior. We too have sin and we were in need of a Savior. And actually what we can do is we can be like Jesus So instead of condemning her in her sin, he actually gives her an opportunity to get out from under her guilt. Instead of condemning her in her sin, he actually says to her, I don't condemn you either, and you can now walk free of sin in your life. Just like Jesus in this story, when we're confronted with do we judge someone or do we not, we we have the opportunity not only to humble ourselves, not only to recognize that, yeah, we too have sin and that Jesus has saved us, but also to offer a way of escape for that person who sinned. You see, when we realize this and we think about the people who frustrate us and the way their sin frustrates us, the way their bad attitudes frustrate us, and the way they treat me at work frustrates me, the way my neighbor doesn't keep his lawn up or doesn't, whatever it is, what it actually causes me to do is it causes my heart to be filled with compassion for other people because I realize that their problem ultimately is a problem of not knowing Jesus. And so in compassion, we come to a place of giving and anchoring our entire lives not to condemn them, not to show how much, you know, how distant we are from them, but to show them how God's come to save their lives. The second criticism Christians are always trying to fix me instead of simply being my friend. I think the way we should respond to this is that we as Christians express a genuine love for outsiders in our life and our speech. Check this out. The biblical word for hospitality. We all love hospitality, right? We love it when people have us over to their house and cook us food and give us a couch to sit on and take a nap. I want to go over to Mike and Chelsea's house now and just be on their couch for a little while. Tell them all my problems, you know? (laughs) We love hospitality. And I think as a church, we're really good at hospitality. I think it's one of our, our strengths is that we love being in each other's homes. If you're in a community group, you've experienced this. Someone's opened their home up. You've been in it. It's not pretentious. It's laid back. We're having fun. We're real with each other. I think we're really good at hospitality as a church. But check this out. Hospitality, the Greek word, for hospitality in the Bible, pronunciation is probably going to be wrong, but philoxena, that's the Greek word, which translates a love of outsiders. So usually we think about hospitality, we think about people in this room, let's have them over to our house, have a meal, enjoy some fellowship. Hospitality is a love for outsiders. It's a love for outsiders. Which big umbrella, what that means is the way, one of the ways that we help outsiders not feel like we're judging them in their lives is that we show them hospitality. We get close to them. So big umbrella is we love them. How does that love work itself out? I think there's a lot of different ways it could. A few that I would suggest is that you regularly have outsiders in your home for a meal and some fun. Have them in your home for a meal. Have some fun with them. I don't know if that means you get out the Scrabble or 
You get outside and fire up, some, fire up a grill, have some burgers. Whatever it is, have outsiders in your home. Have some fun with them. You know, outsiders oftentimes feel they've got to be uptight with Christians because, quite frankly, we're often uptight with ourselves. So break down the pretentious walls and have a good time, relax, enjoy some food, enjoy, enjoy their friendship. Be hospitable to them. Be generous with them. So I think in the church we get this, we, we generally understand this. We generally understand that, yeah, God's called us to be a generous people. So therefore we set, you know, our 10% or whatever it is aside to give to the church and be generous with our lives. Then what happens is we get out into the world and we're like, well, I already gave that money to the church. I'm going to be a tightwad with everybody else. Right? So with our friends and with our neighbors, and we're not generous. We end up being really stingy. If you talk to a waiter, they'll say Sunday afternoons after church, Christians are like the most stingy tippers. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. If God's called us to be a generous people and you're going to give to God's mission in the church, guys, be hospitable, be generous with outsiders. And this could be really simple. I remember when I was a new Christian, the guy who led me to Christ, he bought me a Bible. I was interested in learning about Christianity, he bought me a Bible. He knew I was too stubborn to take it from him, so he said, I just had it laying around. Well, he had it laying around because he just bought it for me, you know, so... (laughs) He, he bought me meals, so, you know, I got to, the church was like, there was a church in our hometown, there was also a church like 45 minutes away. Sometimes we'd go to that one, and he'd give me a ride. He didn't calculate the miles per gallon and, you know, have me send him a check. He just gave me a ride. He bought my meal when we went out to dinner. It can be really simple things that we express generosity to outsiders. It could be making them a plate of cookies and taking it over to their house or you know, being that person at work who's got candy on your desk that everyone just like loves to huddle around. It could be that a need comes up in their life and, and, and they're, they, they, you know, it could be a big generosity thing. Pray about it. Maybe God will leave you, lead you to be extremely generous. It could be simple things like just helping them move or being there for them on their birthday party or whatever it is. Being generous, serving them. We do this really well. I just heard recently of a story of a, uh, you know, a family where uh, they were, it kind of hit like a rough day and somebody had to go to the hospital and the other one had to stay home with the kids and a couple in the church went over and did dishes and brought them a meal and hung out with them. And, you know, it's kind of like with the wife's gone, we know the husband's going to starve the kids because, you know, what are they going to eat? Like crackers or something? So bring a meal over, take care of them. I think we do this really well as a church in-house. We, we serve each other really well. But how are we doing at serving those who aren't a part of the church? How are we doing at serving our neighbors? It's a genuine question. How are you, how are you doing at serving your neighbors? How are you doing at serving your coworkers? Is there ways at work that you could be serving your coworkers that it's not happening? Hey, be hospitable to outsiders. I think another way is that we can have open and honest conversations. I know when I was not a part of the church, when I didn't believe in Christianity, I really, really valued with this guy who led me to Jesus, I valued that I could have open and honest conversations with him. I valued that he asked me about my life and genuinely showed interest. I valued that he took the time to listen to me 
but he also knew some stuff that was really helpful to me. Open and honest conversations is a way to show hospitality. You know, we can get in this frame of mind where we look at what the church has done. We kind of look at the collateral damage of evangelism gone bad. So we look at like TV preachers and people who stand on the corner with a megaphone saying repent or burn. And, you know, we look at all these things with like, okay, evangelism went wrong and therefore I don't want to do that. So we, we fall off the other side of the horse. We think, oh, I can't ever go there. I can't ever talk about faith or God or, or who is Jesus and why does that matter to my life with my friends? But the reality is, actually, that's a big way to love them. That's a big way to show hospitality to them. So we have open, honest conversations about who is God and how can I follow him in my life. A friend of mine, I've been meeting with him at a local, he, he works at a local, local coffee shop. He came to the 9 a.m. service. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, I've been really, I've been really wanting to grow in like spirituality, trying to figure out like who God is and how I can follow in my life. I think one of the most hospitable things I've done for that guy is invite him to church. Now, I'm timid with this. I'm timid with inviting people to church. I think I used to be overly courageous and I got overly timid. But actually, this guy thanked me. He said, hey, thanks for inviting me to church. It's being hospitable. The final complaint, Christians don't understand me and their judgments of me are therefore unmerited and un... It's meant to say unwelcomed, so they're not you know, their judgments are unwelcomed. I think a response would be Christians take time to understand outsiders, although ultimately we do submit to God and his judgments of their life and mine. I want to break this up into two parts. First one would be Christians take time to understand outsiders, and then we'll jump into we submit to God and his judgments of our life and theirs. I think we have a lot of ground to make up for with this take time to actually understand me in my life. Uh, I mean, just like my neighbor who it's like I could see the fear welling up in him when I told him I was a Christian. Just like Jeff who said Christians hate the sin and the sinner. Just like these things about they, they just don't listen. They don't take the time. Guys, that means we have a lot of ground to make up for. That means that when we initiate a conversation about God or we initiate a conversation about what someone believes, people are immediately assuming that we're trying to convert them. They're immediately assuming that we're just in their business because we don't like the way they're living their lives. We have a ton of ground to make up for here. I remember when I was in college, I was taking a guy home uh, from school one day and and he, you know, he said, hey, can you give me a quick lift home? I was like, yeah, sure. 45 minutes later, you know, I drop him off at his house. But anyway, I'm not bitter. Um, He... In the middle of the conversation, you know, as we're driving and he tells me it's going to be 45 minutes, I'm like, all right, I'm going, to, I'm going to get something out of this conversation. I'm not letting this one go. You know, it's not going to be an hour and a half of my day for no reason. So, um, so I asked him, I said, hey, what do you think about faith, God? Where are you at with the whole spirituality thing? And, and he starts telling me about how his family is a part of a, like, you know, they're, I don't know how to say it appropriately, you know, Indian tribe. And um, when he was 13, he did this he did this kind of like, you know, he entered into the like manhood by worshiping some of his ancestors and calling on some of his ancestors to come and kind of like bless him into manhood. And he said he, he felt one of his ancestors put their hand on his head. So this guy's had some like crazy spiritual experience that 
one side of me wanted to just say, man, you are getting into some deep stuff here. Can I tell you about Jesus? Get you out of that. Because you're, I mean, you're getting into some deep waters that could really get you in trouble, kind of messing with the whole spiritual world. That was my instinct. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to say, dude, God of the Bible, he's come to save you. Come believe in Jesus. Drop you off your house. You'll be a happy born-again Christian. I fought my instinct. I fought my instinct. And what I said to him was, man, that's really interesting. Tell me more. About 20 minutes into him telling me more, which, by the way, it was some pretty interesting stuff that I'd never even known existed. About 20 minutes into this, he, I think he felt like, okay, this guy understands me. This guy's interested in me, and he's actually wanting to be a friend here. That's the way friendship works, right? It's, it's two ways. It's not just me telling you, but it's us sharing life. About 20 minutes in, he says, so what do you think about God? What do you think about this whole spirituality thing? Which at that point I was able to tell him, you know, Jesus has come to die for his sins, that I believe in this, this kind of God that was ambiguous to him, that kind of, you know, reigns over his ancestors and, and, and generations past. I was able to tell him, hey, look, like the God of, you know, generation after generation after generation has sent his son. And I believe that he's like died for my sin and, and made a way for me to know God. So I was, I was able to get here with him. But the point is, sometimes it takes time to understand someone. And, and I think we really have to get to the place of understanding that people won't care how much we know until they know how much we care. They'll never care how much you know. They'll never care if your religion is right, if you believe the right thing, if you've found God or not, if they don't know genuinely that you care about them. So we need to take time to listen. The second part of this response, if we could have it back up again. Ultimately, they submit to God and his judgments of my life and his. So hey guys, we know this. We know we don't want to be the moral police. We know that we don't want to go around telling everyone, don't do this, don't do that. We know we don't want to throw penalty flags at our friends every time they like say a cuss word or have a wrong attitude or wrong belief. We understand that our goal is to lead him to Jesus. And once Jesus gets in the house, he does a good job of rearranging the furniture and making the house how he wants it to be. We understand that, right? We also understand this, that Romans 14, 10 through 12. We understand that one day all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And that one day each of us will give an account of himself to God. So that means me, that means you, that means our friends who don't know Jesus. One day, they're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We know that. And so we're kind of caught in this tension of we don't want to be judgmental, but we also want to help people understand that eternity's real, hell's hot, we don't want them to be there. Right? So how do we kind of navigate those waters? I think one thing we do is we don't put ourselves in the judgment seat of God. So if you look at the verse, it says we're all going to stand before whose judgment seat? God's judgment seat, right? So one of the things we can do is we can help our friends understand that we don't judge them, although we do understand that me and my sin, I was going to be judged by God. I was going to be judged by God for my sin, but thankfully because I'm in Christ now, Jesus was already judged for my sin. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus was judged for our sin, so we can talk with our friends openly and honestly about eternity, about 
their salvation, but yet still submitting to the fact that one day we're all going to be judged. And, and, and thankfully, Christ has made a way to where we would be judged based on his righteousness, based on what he's done, not based on our sin. That's the problem with those who stand outside and picket and say, God's going to judge you. You're going to go to hell. They've missed it. The good news is that God judged Jesus so that we wouldn't have to sit under God's wrath and judgment in our lives. Another Another way that we can fall off the horse with this whole thing is that we can talk about not wanting to judge outsiders and not wanting to judge one another, but but we can, we can miss the reality that actually God's calling us not just out of sin, but into a new life. So what do you do with someone once they become a Christian? What do you do with this adulterous woman now that she has come to Jesus? Say she goes back into adultery. How do we handle that? How do we deal with that? Right? So I'm putting a little bit of attention back in here because this whole time we've been talking about not judging outsiders. And now I'm bringing up the question, what do we do inside the church? What do we do inside the church with those who already know Jesus, who have made a decision, I'm going to continue in sin? Or who you see your brother walking in sin and you ask yourself, what what do I do with this? Because one of the doctrines that can kind of slip into the church, this kind of wind of doctrine that can breeze in, is that you and I, although we love each other and we're a church family together, and we're going to come here and worship together and share meals in each other's homes, that really we should stay out of each other's business. Right? And you've felt that, you've, you, you've, you've heard that, that hey, hey, don't, don't talk to me about that, don't go there, this kind of area of my life, that's, that's for me, I get to choose what I do with my life. That's not for you to be asking me about, that's not for you to be talking to me about. So what do we do? Well, Paul says in Ephesians four, fifteen, he says, rather, instead of being tossed all about by these winds of doctrine, this is what we do, guys, this is what we do, we speak the truth in love. And this is how we grow up into Jesus. This is how we grow up into Jesus, is that we speak the truth in love to one another. So let me give you an example. If I were to come home this afternoon and my wife was sitting at the dinner table eating a bowl of bleach, saying like, oh, this is, this is going to be a great meal. It's going to be delicious. Bowl of bleach. And I walk by and I'm like, oh, honey, good to see you. Talk to you in a little bit. And I just sit there and let her eat that, and I kind of go off and do my own thing. Uh, you know what I'm going to come back to? I'm going to come back to a dead wife, right? I mean, that's like A plus B equals C. Like, eat bowl of bleach, you die. I come back, that's what I find. Well, hey, in the same way, if we're to take sin seriously and take the Bible seriously, and not just kind of pick and choose out of Scripture what we want, but follow Jesus as he is, if sin leads to death... In the same way, when I see my brother in sin and I just kind of go on and act like nothing's happening, essentially I'm leaving him to eat a bowl of bleach and not just destroy his physical body, but destroy his emotional and spiritual body as well. You see, we get it wrong sometimes when we think about why God's told us to do this and not do this. We think that God's trying to impede on our life. We think that God's trying to just keep us from bad things. But really the reason God says do this, don't do this, is because he loves us. And he knows that sin leads to death. 
death of our death of our bodies, death of our souls, death of our relationship with him, with each other. God in his love for us says, don't sin. He's bought us out of sin so that we could walk in what? The newness of life. So when we see our brother eating a bowl of sin, what do we do? We speak the truth in love to them. Now guys, we don't do surgery without antiseptic. Did I say that right? Antiseptic? Last service, I think I said, uh, what did I say? Anesthetic. That's what I said. Anyway, we don't do that. We're, we're kind, we're gentle, we're gracious with each other. We do it in a way we can heal wounds and not just like stab them in the back. But the reality is God has commanded us to speak up. God has commanded us that when we see one another in sin, we are to bring it to one another. The Bible doesn't say if you've, if you've got a good enough relationship or you're feeling courageous today or you think they'll just receive it really well, then go and talk to them. No, it says speak the truth in love to one another. Now, that doesn't mean we don't use wisdom and we just chuck wisdom out the window. I mean, there is a reality to if someone's not wanting to hear, you know, we can't force truth on each other. If someone's not invited you into that place in their life, if someone's not made some sort of a commitment to, I do want to follow Jesus and I do want to be held accountable in my life, then we're kind of just beating each other over the head with pans and it's not going to do any good. But if done in grace and truth and love, and if the other person is a, is a, is a believer who wants to follow Jesus, we can actually bring healing and correction to one another and, and save one another from going down a destructive path. I know for me, about a year and a half ago, I was with the location pastor down at the Lake of the Ozark, Seth Hine. And I just mentioned to Seth in passing, like, you know, my wife and I were having some problems with our calendar. I just can't figure out how to make it all work and not like, you know, kill her in the process. And, and he's like, yeah, man, let's go on a walk. I'd love to talk to you about that. You know, gentle, gracious, kind guy. And so we're on this walk, kind of walking around, talking. He's asking me questions. I'm thinking, man, he really understands me. He's going to give me that, like, nugget of truth where I can just fix it all. And it's going to... And he turns to me and he says, yeah, man, I think you love being busy, which for me, being busy meant I was important. So I think you love being busy more than you love your wife. I wanted to sock him in the face. (laughs) What do you mean I love being busy more than I love my... You don't even know. Get out of here. Who, who asked you? <laughs> so that was my initial response. Eventually, I got to a place of, okay, I want to hear God on this. Is this true? Him and I prayed together. God was convicting me. That, that was true of me. So I stood before him out in front of my house. I stood before God, and I repented. I went in my house, and I repented to my wife. You should have seen it. It was like a truck got lifted off her shoulders. Oh, been trying to keep up. I, I thought this about you, but I didn't know how to say it to you. She's been praying for me. I mean, bless her. She's been praying for me. Now, Seth could have just left me where I was. He could have just rolled over and said, I don't know how to help you, man. I mean, do less stuff, I guess, you know, or, he, or hey, schedule like this. He could have just rolled over the whole sin issue. 
But instead, in his love for me, he kept me from going down a destructive path, which was destroying me, destroying my wife, destroying what God had called us to do, really. So guys, when you see your brother, your sister in sin, we actually have an opportunity to bring them back to the truth. We can bring healing and, and, and God's, just a flood of God's grace to them. Now, like I said, it's not easy to receive. It's, I mean, it's hard to hear stuff like that. Everything in us kind of shoots up and says, don't go there, right? I mean, if you've ever had someone, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've never had someone do this to you, and that means you're not in community. Because if you've never felt that sense of like, don't you go there, that means people aren't going there. <laughs> it's true. And if people aren't going there, you're not in true biblical community. I mean, so we talk about community groups. We say fun stuff. We love having a good time together. The reason we do community groups is because we can't follow Jesus without each other. I would have remained in, I would have remained in, remained in. I would have remained blind to my sin. And this, that's a small example. There's bigger ones. I would have remained blind to my sin if he wouldn't have said that to me. All of us, we, would, we will remain immature in the faith. We will not grow up in Christ if we don't have people in our life saying stuff to us. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Peter says this. He says, God opposes. I started, God jumped in. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, what is it? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why does God oppose the proud? God opposes the proud because he can't give his grace to someone who's proud. If we don't humble ourselves to receive, we can't receive his grace. So if, if you're proud, like I wanted to be proud in that moment, if you're proud and don't want to be open with your life, don't want people speaking into it, God will oppose you. I mean, that's the hard truth. If we're proud and we, and we, we don't let God and others speak into our life, God, God has no means of pouring his grace into our lives. The good news is if we humble ourselves, we can receive an abundance of grace from him. So let me ask you this. How can you become a friend of sinners this week? Per- personally, how can you become a friend of sinners? Whether it's speaking something, whether it's being hospitable, whether it's just humbling yourself and losing the pretense. Maybe it's serving your neighbors, being generous with an old friend. How can you become a friend of sinners this week? And the second question I would ask, is there anyone in this church, anyone in your Anyone in the body of believers you're a part of that you feel, man, I don't want to do this, but I just feel I need to speak the truth in love to them. I feel I need to have a hard conversation. We want to be a people who respond to God, right? We don't want to just look at his word and walk away unchanged. We want to respond to God.